If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of 2 Samuel, the 15th chapter. We continue in the tale of David's decline after his great sin. And this morning we will look at a chapter that you may be very familiar with the general outline of the story, but perhaps not the details. And so at the risk of using a portion of my time, I'm going to read for you the entire text, the entire 37 verses of this chapter 15. Because it's lengthy, I'm going to especially remind you to give good attention to the reading and hearing of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Samuel 15, beginning at verse 1. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were a judge in the land, that every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gileonite, David's counselor, from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out, and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out, and all the people after him. And they halted at the last house. 
and all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and all the six hundred Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I know not, since I go where I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also shall your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron. And all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up. And behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimehaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat the counsel of Ahithophel for me. Are not Zadak and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimehaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord, our God. Lord, we ask you this morning that you would open up your word to us. That by the power of your spirit, we would see who you are, what you have done, 
and we would see ourselves as in a mirror. Your word is life, Lord, and we thank you for it. We thank you for each and every opportunity to know the Lord Jesus Christ in a greater way. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. When things are going badly in our lives, we tend to assume that God is far from us. We picture God as someone who can only be our judge. He's only interested in punishing us for the sins that we have done. In fact, that's why He's so far from us. Now, this certainly could have applied to David where he is this morning. We even have God's statement about the judgment that would come to David to go on from this in chapter 12. But this chapter shows us that God uses hard times to grow our faith. Even when those hard times are the result of His chastising us for our sins. It may seem odd to you and me, but David's faith in the Lord became much stronger as his days grew darker. This is something that we need to take to heart to give us hope in hard times. We need to trust the Lord. So this morning what I'd like us to see in chapter 15 are two main headings. The first thing we will see is the anatomy of a conspiracy. Absalom puts together a conspiracy and he executes it. And then the second thing we see is David's response of faith to this conspiracy that is sprung upon him. David does not sit idly by, but his response is one of faith in the Lord his God. The anatomy of a conspiracy and the response of faith. Let's begin then by looking at this conspiracy that Absalom begins to bring together. Now, you all know that Absalom is now back in town. He's back in Jerusalem. You will remember that David had allowed him to return from exile. Absalom had spent three years in exile. And then after Joab had procured his return... Absalom spent two years in kind of a different sort of exile. He was back in Jerusalem, but he could not come to court. He was not to see David's face. He was in his own home. He was kind of at under house arrest almost. Five years in which Absalom was on the outside. Then David finally reconciled, so to speak, with him. We saw that last week in chapter 14. But you will recall that that was not a real reconciliation. There was no real repentance. There was no show of love for David by Absalom. There was no real restoration of this relationship. It was maybe a thawing, but there was no restoration. And now, Absalom begins to plot. After all, he is the heir to the throne. He is the oldest surviving son now after having murdered the crown prince. And David has shown himself as a weak ruler. He did not bring justice for Tamar. He did not bring justice for the murdered Amnon. And Absalom knows this all too well. Absalom 
is beginning to think to himself, why should I wait to be the king? I should be the king now. I need to get the old man out of the way. He doesn't know what he's doing. And so he goes about setting a plan to get the kingship. And he starts out here spreading his image. What we see here should be familiar to you. I know that we don't have chariots and we're not in ancient Israel, but all you need to think about is the incessant political campaigning of our age. That's what you've got here. Absalom gets for himself a chariot and horses. And what kind of a man doesn't have 50 men to run in front of him and announce everywhere he's coming? That's what's going on here. He wants everyone to see him as an important or a kingly figure. This is what politicians do all the time. They want you to look at him or look at her and say, Ooh, that's a senator. Oh, that person could be president. Oh, look at everything about them. And so Absalom does the ancient equivalent of flashing himself. Putting himself out there so people can see how great he is. He's not helping the kingdom at all. He's just putting on showmanship. Now, this should be familiar and it should also be something that we need to take to heart. Because we live in a world of style over substance. We live in a world of carefully crafted images and showmanship. And that can even come to us. We can be tempted to be more concerned about our own image and what people think about us than about the reality of who we are. Don't fall for that. It's substance that matters in a person. Well, Absalom is more than a show-off. He begins now to spend his time, we see in verse 2, at the gate. He sets his alarm and wakes up earlier than everyone else, but not to go and work at a job. No, he shows up at the gate. Now, why would he do this? The gate of the city was the place where the elders came to conduct judgment, to be judges. And so Absalom wants to get there first, <coughs> but he's just a pretend judge. He's not doing any real judges. He's not doing anything productive. No, he's using this as an opportunity to criticize David. He is intentionally working the crowd. As plaintiffs come in, he asks them, what's your case? And he looks at them, and I can just imagine with his hand on his chin, nodding thoughtfully, as if he knows every statute in Israel. And surprise of surprise, Absalom never met a plaintiff that didn't have a good case. Can you imagine that? The odds of 100 out of 100 plaintiffs having the best case? But that's what Absalom says. I'm sure it's not that he wants those who are coming in to be flattered or to have false hope. No. The problem, he says, is not with your case. It's with the king and the way he runs the system. That's what he says in verse 3. Your claims are good and right. But there's no man designated by the king to, to hear you. Now, you will notice here what's not in the text. Absalom doesn't say, let me try and help you through this logjam of cases. Let me go and try and work with the systems to speed this up or so we could be more efficient. No, 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 no. 
There's no help here at all. All he wants is everything to center on him. Now, can you just imagine in your mind's eye the tone of voice, the inflection of face? Oh, if only I were a judge. Everything would be perfect. Don't you wish, Mr. Plaintiff, that I was your judge? As a matter of fact, I already told you you'd win. So you really want me to be your judge, right? That's what Absalom does here. It's all centering on him. And then he continues on and he shows himself off as the common man. You see this in verse 5. Whenever a man came to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Now, there's nothing romantic going on here. There's, this is merely a cultural accommodation. You see, the crown prince would have people come to him and get on their knees and bow down to him in homage to him. And Absalom says, oh, no, 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 let's not be formal. I'm just one of the guys. Come up here and let me give you a hearty handshake. I'm just like you. Now again, all you have to do is go back to whatever the latest election is that we've had to see this, right? Where we see millionaire politicians insisting that they eat all the time at McDonald's, right? Or wearing baseball caps, trucker caps, and telling people stories about all the hard times that they've had. And how they can relate to the common man. And they're out in the fields in Iowa. Or they're out in the snow dunes in New Hampshire. And it's all about making that connection. I'm just like you. Well, I'm the crown prince, but no, really. I'm just like you. This is clearly a part of the plot to take over. In verse 6 we see the phrase, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And this is not, we should not consider this phrase to be that he won them over, that they began to love him. This phrase is an idiom that's used elsewhere in the Bible that means that he deceived them. He tricked them. He's a trickster. That's what he's doing here. But Israel is also a kingdom of faith. And so Absalom can't just be the common man who's the great judge with chariots in front of him. No, no, he's got to be pious also. He's got to wear his religion on a sleeve so that everyone knows that he's pious. And it just so happens that he needs a way to get some space between himself and David. He can't exactly plot when David's on top of him. And so he asks himself, how can I get out from under David's eye? Now, Four years of plotting have gone by. Four years of posturing, showing off, deceiving. That's what the text tells us. And Absalom comes up to David and he says, I need to go to Hebron to pay a vow that I made four, six Maybe nine years ago, depending on when he made the vow. It's at least four years ago, more likely six or nine. And, and we might wonder, why does David put up with this? Why does David say, oh yes, go in peace? Why does it David ask some questions? You know, I'm not even the king, and I would ask, why'd you wait four years to fulfill the vow? What you been doing, Absalom? How busy have you been? And, and why didn't you take care of this earlier if it was so important to you? But David doesn't do this. Now, he doesn't do this for the same reason he hasn't done other things. 
He doesn't want to upset his son. You see, you have to understand David's mindset. It's continuing. We've seen this over and over again. He feels guilty because of his own sin. He knows that all that has happened is his fault. And so he doesn't want to bring it up. But there's something else that I think is also at play. David is ever hopeful that Absalom will come around and show the faintest sign of repentance. And Absalom seizes on that. He says, I have to go and honor the Lord. And David takes this smallest sign of the weakest inkling of piety. And David puts all kinds of hope in it. Now, there's a lesson here for parents. We should be eager to see signs of spiritual life in our children. But we also have to be discerning. When our children are not really showing spiritual life, we don't do them any favors by pretending that they are. Because all we do is leave them in a place of danger and judgment. False piety is no help to anyone. Now all of this sets the table for Absalom's rebellious action. It is swift, it is planned out, and it is ruthless. He sends secret messengers out to the cities to let the conspirators know when he's ready. And he takes 200 men from Jerusalem. You'll recall that the text tells us that they were innocent, that they did not know what was going on. So essentially, they are hostages. They will come with Absalom to Hebron. And you can imagine those 200 men when Absalom says, I'm the king. What do you think of that? And behind him are standing soldiers sharpening their swords. And they say, oh yeah, you're the king. You've always been the king. We'd love for you to be the king. You're the king. Right? Because they're hostages. Do you see the wickedness of this plot? And then Absalom sends for the king's counselor. Everything has been arranged. And Absalom has no hesitation at all about striking out at the Lord's anointed. This gives us a glimpse into his heart. He is even willing to cover up this sin with false piety to make it look like worship. Once we start down the path of sin, the worst thing that can happen is that we find some success. Because then we become blind to the wickedness of sin. Don't just look at the outcomes of your life. You need to look at your actions and your motives before the Lord our God. Well, all this sets the stage for David's response, his response of faith. Do you remember in the last two chapters how David was passive and how he said that there were other actors who were carrying on the action? David was merely reacting to what others were doing? Do you remember how he said that was so unlike the David of his youth? The David we've known since his earliest days. It's almost as if David had his joy in the Lord stolen from him. He wasn't sure how to express his faith in the Lord since this sin. But now, 
Hard times have pressed the matter. David has to act. God is using David's flight like he did David's flight from Saul. David has nowhere to turn. He is no longer in control. He can't manipulate events. He can only turn to God. Now, you might think that your spiritual life would be on its most solid footing in good times. That that's when you would be able to really spend time with the Lord and be spiritually secure. But so often that's not true. When times are good, we forget the Lord. We take Him for granted. It's when trouble comes to us that we know we need the Lord. And so it shouldn't surprise us to see that the Lord at times sends trouble to us to draw us closer to Him. Well, first, David hears of the conspiracy and the coup. In verse 13, a messenger tells him, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Now, what should David do here? This is a time of great pressure. David has to make a major decision quickly. And it's going to affect himself, the kingdom, and all sorts of people. The wrong decision here would be disastrous. Now, we might think that wisdom would say, stay put, hold on, make Absalom attack Jerusalem and its big, high walls. That's the safest place in the kingdom. But David, in verse 14, does the exact opposite. He says, we've got to get out of here and get out of here quickly. Why does he do this? Well, for the first time in a very long time, David is thinking beyond himself. See, David knew that Jerusalem did have walls that could be defended. But if David stays, the population of Jerusalem will suffer. There'll be a siege. There'll be hunger. There'll be disease. There'll be death. The people will be put in the midst of the battlefield, as it were. The battlefield won't be out somewhere in the country. It'll be in their very homes. And so David doesn't want to subject them to that. But I think there's a second reason as well. that David, at this point, doesn't know whom he can trust. The people who are in Jerusalem are going to say, of course, we're with you all the way, David, because David and his army are in Jerusalem. But when Absalom shows up, who will betray him in the city? Can he trust every soldier? Can he trust those who are in the city not to betray him? The only way that David can know who's with him is by leaving. Because when he leaves, those who go with him, who leave their homes, who leave their goods, their jobs, they're loyal. They're the most loyal to David. It's almost as if the old David is back. The one who had wisdom from above. Who always made the right decision in a crisis. And God is preserving David here. There is a visible sign of God's promise that he will never leave or forsake David. You see, Absalom was counting on God abandoning David. Absalom's view of God was based on a works righteousness. And so from Absalom's point of view, David had failed God, and therefore God will be through with David. He'll have nothing more to do with him. That's the thought. 
This is far too often the common view in our world today. Even among many who call themselves Christians. They think that their relationship with God is made on a transaction of what they do. And so you hear Christians talking about how God has abandoned the church because we have failed to win the culture war. Or God has given up on us because we have given in and not resisted every single COVID restriction. But that's not the way of grace. Grace teaches us that in spite of our failings, God never lets go. We have to remember that. So David has wisdom, but there is more. David again begins to see God's providential hand in all that is happening, and God and David trusts God. When we see with the eyes of faith, we are able to look beyond our circumstances. And even more, we see how bad circumstances can be God's means of bringing us to himself. So all of David's servants now pass by in an orderly retreat. This is no panic. All of David's people and their families, the text tells us their households, march out. And among the most loyal soldiers are his foreign mercenaries. We see this in verse 18. The Cherethites and the Pelethites and the Gittites. Now, we don't know all of the story of the Gittites. But we do know from the text that they are exiles and recent ones at that in verse 19. They were probably cast out by the Philistines. They were from Gath. Gath is a Philistine town. And they had nowhere to go. And so David took them in. He gave them a home. And so as a result, they were loyal to David. Now David asks Ittai, their leader, why he's going. He says, shouldn't you stay here with the king? Absalom is going to be the de facto king shortly. You should stay here with the king. He says, you've just gotten here. You shouldn't be on the run with me. You don't need to take my burden. But Ittai will have none of this. He has what I would call a Ruth moment. Do you remember Ruth and Naomi? When Naomi says to Ruth, stay here with your people. You don't need to be miserable with me. And Ruth says, no, no, no. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. And there's this wonderful last phrase. Your God my God. Ruth has bound herself to Naomi and the God of Israel. That's what Ittai is saying here. I'm with you, David. I'm serving the Lord. You're the Lord's anointed. I will be with you at all times. And he's so serious, he takes a double oath in verse 21. He swears, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the King lives. And he holds nothing back. Do you see this? In verse 22, all the little ones who were with him go with David. They take the kids and the toddlers and the babies. They all go into exile. None will be left behind. They all go with David. Now this is a blessing from God in dark places for David. David is awash in treason. 
and Ittai is faithful. This is what God does for us at times. You may remember the story of Ebed-Melech, who was the only friend that Jeremiah had at court. And when Jeremiah was thrown into a dry well, a cistern, and left there to die by the king and Jeremiah's enemies, Ebed-Melech risked his own life to go to the king and to say, we need to pull Jeremiah out of this pit. And he made it happen. You might remember Onesephorus ministering to the Apostle Paul when he was in prison. You might remember Frederick the Wise taking in Luther at the risk of his own life. There was a pronouncement from the Pope and from the Emperor that anyone that helped this heretic Luther forfeited their own life. And Frederick took Luther in and disguised him and kept him safe. This is no coincidence. This is God at work. Are you the kind of friend that the Lord can use? Are you an encourager? Are you someone who listens and provides comfort for others? You can be. This is more important than you think. The person next to you may need a friend now may not know if there's a friend. And the fact that you are a friend to them may show them that God is with them and has not abandoned them. Well, David also shows this trust in God's providence with the ark. Abiathar and Zadok, the priests, show up with the ark. Now, this would be encouraging. All the priests are pro-David. That's good. They want to go with David, and they want to bring the ark with them. And this makes sense, because how could Absalom oppose the ark? David would be invincible with the ark. But David does something remarkable. Do you see it in verse 25? He tells them to go back into the city. David knows the history of the ark. He knows it's not a magic weapon. Israel tried that before. David doesn't need the ark to win battles. David has something else. You see, David is trusting the Lord at his word. Do you remember the promise that God gave to David in chapter 7? That David's kingdom would be eternal? That the Lord would be with him forever? Chapter 12's pronouncement of judgment does not negate that promise. You see, David is trusting God's covenant promise in the face of all he can see. It's as if David is saying, I know I will be back in Jerusalem because of God's promise. But he also says, if God in his great wisdom determines not to preserve me, but to preserve my kingdom in another way, then let the Lord do what is good to him. What a way to think about your life and providence and God's promises. Here's a quote from Ralph Davis that, as always, is too good not to use. Dr. Davis says, There are no gimmicks, no superstitions, no rabbit's foot religion, no conning God by pilfering the ark. This is not weak resignation, but robust submission. Here is the freedom of faith in the will of God.
Do you view God's Word this way? Does God's Word inform your hope for your children when they wander from Jesus and the church? Your life when you lose your job? It's not a blind trust in fate. It's trusting the providence of the great, loving, covenant-promising God. You can trust Jesus today. Well, there's one final thing for us to see. It's David praying to the Lord and acting in accordance with that. We might ask ourselves, could things get worse for David? His son is attacking him. He's leaving the city. He doesn't know what the future holds. Have you ever had one of those, oh no, moments? You know, you thought you had all you could take. And then this happens. Maybe it happened to you during Harvey. Or maybe because of COVID. Or maybe something happened in your family. And you wonder how you could possibly bear up under this latest providence. David has one of those moments now. It's in verse 31. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Ahithophel is now one of the conspirators. This is a disaster on top of a disaster. Not only does David lose his most trusted and wise counselor, Absalom now gets him. It's a double minus. David is weaker and Absalom is stronger. And Ahithophel's wisdom will make up for any of Absalom's shortcomings or weaknesses. Let's face it, Absalom is not exactly known for his wisdom. And now he's got a counselor to help him. And we're... Ahithophel is described for us in the next chapter, chapter 16, verse 23, to give you an idea of how devastating this is. Now, in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. This is a significant event Now, as we come to this in the text, you may be asking yourself, why has Ahithophel hitched himself to Absalom? Why is he leaving David and going with Absalom? Maybe he's angry at David for something, or maybe he wants a raise. Would it help you to know, perhaps, that Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather? Might that color the way that Ahithophel views David? Because it's true. That's what we find out later in 2 Samuel. So what does David do? Things are bad. Now things are worse. Well, he does, I think, what many of us do and don't think much of. He throws up one of these one-sentence prayers. Oh, Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. I'm sure you've done that. I know I've done that. When bad things are happening, we just cry out to the Lord. And we think that really can't be that effective. I haven't had time to get down on my knees. I haven't folded my hands. I haven't prepared a few paragraphs to pray. I don't have these and thous ready. You know, I can't recite some scripture. How's God going to listen to this one-off sentence? Well, what we see here is that's the perfect kind of prayer to throw up to God. Because it's David saying, 
I'm lost, Lord. I can't do anything. It's all up to you. I can't fight this. I can't do anything about this. I can't stop this. I need you, Lord, to protect me. I want you to notice something else here. That David doesn't know how God is going to answer this prayer. He doesn't have a plan for God. You know, often when we pray, we think we need to figure everything out so that we can pray to God so God can know how God's supposed to fix it. We don't just come to Him with the problem. We've got to come up with the solution and say, okay, God, if you only do this and do that and don't do this, I think everything will be good. Would you please do that for me, God? Right? You don't need to tell God how to fix your problems. Just go to Him with your problems. Last time I checked, God was wiser than you and me. He knows all things, even before we ask for them. Trust Him. He is the one who's wise and able. Well, God answers David's prayer almost immediately in verse 32, and it's not the way we would expect. Hushai the archite shows up with a torn coat and dirt on his head. He's ready to go with David, and he's almost in mourning. He's desperately in need of a shower, and his clothing is in tatters. And we might say to ourselves, how's this guy going to help? But David sees it. You see, while David was coming to the summit, David's in the middle of the sad march, praying to the Lord, and he sees Hushai, and he says, God's already answered my prayer. And he seizes upon it. He sends Hushai back to combat the counsel of Ahithophel. And you will notice that God answers David's prayer, but not in the way David asks. Because David says, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And we'll see next week that it is anything but foolish. Ahithophel's counsel is as if it was from the word of God. But what God does is, he makes Absalom's ears hearing the counsel foolish. God brings it about. David trusts God here. He says, you can go, Hushai, and get me word of what's going on through the priest's sons. Everything that David has done here is to trust God in his providence. Notice David's complete leaning on God in prayer and depending on his providence. And notice that it does not make David passive. Sometimes we think if we're to trust God, we can't do anything. I hate to tell you, but if you have the bumper sticker on your car that says, let go and let God, let me know and I will scrape it off. Because that's not biblical. We trust God and then we act boldly in assurance of his promises. We act piously. We act holy in accordance with his promises. And that's what David does. The providence of God gives David confidence to act. Trusting God means living like you trust God. Faith makes us bold. Well, this is a dark time in David's life. Maybe the darkest ever, and that is saying something. Yet God never abandoned David. 
The Lord gave David reminders of that truth. He gave him Ittai and Abiathar and Zadok and Hushai. What has God given you to remind you that you're not alone in your troubles? The most important thing that God has given to you is another king who walked out of Jerusalem barefoot on the same path of tears that David walked, across that same brook that David crossed. But he, the Lord Jesus Christ, did not go as an exile. No. He went to gather for himself a family. Jesus did not forsake you, even at the cost of his own life. Jesus is the one you can trust. Will you trust him now? Go to Jesus. Let's pray.